You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. We are in Hebrews chapter 2 today, so if you have your Bible, feel free to turn there. We'll go all the way to the end of the chapter. Uh, whether you uh, know this or not, I just want to make this sh- sure you know, I am not a fan of soccer. I don't know why I feel like I need to tell you that, but I am not a fan of soccer, but I love, I love sports, and I particularly love sports and teams that have great tradition, but I also love sports that have quirky rules and regulations. I, I'm drawn to awkward, um, I'm drawn to things that are complex, and so from my understanding, there's, there's a pretty cool thing that happens in soccer leagues in Europe and South America. And so from the best of my understanding, so the, this could be wrong, but this is from the best of my understanding. There are scores of teams that play soccer across, let's say, England. And they have small town teams, they have big town teams, and all of those teams carry the term professional, which means that if it were here, Bluffton could have a professional team in the same manner as a team like Chicago. Could you imagine Bluffton playing the Bears? But that's kind of how it's set up in England. And in England, there are four major leagues full of 20 soccer teams. And those leagues and divisions are determined strictly by record, not by years of experience, not by size, not by money. And so teams that perform well are promoted to higher leagues, and teams that perform poorly are relegated, as it's called. They're demoted to lesser leagues. And so here's the scenario that happens every single year. Most leagues take the top three teams in their league, and they are promoted to the league higher than yours, except if you're in the Premier League. That's the, the biggest Grandest league of them all. And leagues, then the the teams with the three worst records are demoted. They're relegated to a lesser league. And so there's four leagues, and the premier league is at the top. There's a league called the Champions League that's right below it. And so what that means is that there every year are teams that come into this league by the means of promotion, but also through the means of relegation. So... That means that you have an entire grouping of fans who are overjoyed at a promotion, something that they had hoped for for years, that their team has finally made it into the championship league, and they're excited about it. But at the same time, in the same league, you have a group of fans who are absolutely dejected at being humiliated by being relegated into this same league. And so you've got groups that are joyful in promotion, all the while groups that are dejected in humiliation at their relegation. And so as we turn to chapter 2 in Hebrews today, we are going to find a kind of promotion. Our author turns to comfort this little storm-tossed church in around 70 AD with the joyful hope of a promise 
of a promotion to restored glory and honor. He reminds them of mankind's original intent, that we were created a little lesser than the angels, but that sin has diminished that role. But there is a future promotion for us in the new heavens and the new earth to rule and reign with God at his right hand, to be above angels. And that promotion will only happen through the humiliating relegation of Jesus Christ, who will be made for a moment little, a little lesser than angels like us for our cause and for our promotion. And so we're gonna walk through that belief and understanding today. Now, there are two threads of conflict in this chapter that the author is dealing with that aren't present in our day-to-day life. Now, there is an assumption from our author that we have a deep, deep understanding of Old Testament scripture. In fact, this author quotes from the Old Testament and he doesn't cite his verses. The people that he was speaking to would have known exactly what he was talking about. We don't share that same sort of depth and understanding, so we've got to be a little bit slower here. The second thing he assumes is that you understand the current in the context of the world in that day. And what is happening in that day is a, there is a group of people who believe that Jesus existed, but he never came in flesh. They believed that he was some floating head that people thought they saw Jesus in person, but they actually never did. It's a group of people called the Gnostics, and we've talked about them from time to time on a Sunday morning. They are a continual issue for our New Testament church. Today, we don't have the conflict of somebody coming up to us and saying, I don't believe that Jesus was a human. In fact, we have the opposite conflict from that. Most people in this world, whether they're believers or not, believe that Jesus existed as a human person. Their argument is whether he was divine or not. The second conflict that our author is dealing with is a group of people who are dealing with the scandal around Jesus' death. There are people in that day who saw the way that Jesus died, who heard of the gruesome details of his death, and they cannot reconcile the fact that Jesus claimed to be divine and died in such a horrific manner. For many, there is a shame and a stigma attached to the way that Jesus died. And so our author is going to set out to tell us, to teach us the necessity of the gruesome death of Jesus Christ. And so let's keep those two things in mind as we walk through this text. But let us pray first. Lord, it is just a great joy to gather here this morning as your saints, as your congregants, Lord, to to worship your name. And so, Lord, will you, by your spirit, will you bring truth and conviction into your life? Will you produce gladness where we need it? Will you produce conviction where we're off, Lord? Will you use your word to your effect? We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. These verses are chocked full of beautiful truths that we'll try to get as much as we can in here today. And so let's look at verse 5 here in chapter 2, and we'll chunk this up verse by verse. In verse 5, it says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. 
Now, if we would flip back to the very first chapter of Hebrews, we would find the author opening with the understanding that in this, the last days, that God has spoken to us through his son. And we discussed that this is a literal statement for interpretation, but it is characterizing of the last era of humanity that was ushered in by Jesus. The age of the Messiah has come. Jesus has finished the work of atonement on the cross, and the arrival or return of our king is imminent. And so when the author says in this chapter, in verse 5, the world to come of which we are speaking, he is talking about the world to come when Jesus arrives with his everlasting kingdom. And in that kingdom, he reminds us that it will not be angels that rule, but it will be God's people who will rule and reign with him. And he's using this argument. He's bringing this up because he's arguing for the necessity of Jesus Christ coming into flesh. Humanity would rule and reign with God in the world to come. Therefore, he must fix the problem with the human condition. So if your son or daughter, hopefully this will ever never happen to you, would go to school and they would get in some deep, deep trouble, they would cheat on an exam, would you go into your classroom, your son's classroom, your daughter's classroom, would you go in and would you educate the teacher on how to give an exam in a way that your son and daughter doesn't cheat? Or would you scold them for not keeping their eye on your son or daughter constantly so that they would not cheat? You would not do that, right? That would be silly. That would be unappreciated, unnecessary. What would you do? You would go to the problem. You would go to your son and daughter and you would say, what is going on with you? Why did you do this? Why, what were you thinking in that moment? The author is painting the case for the necessity of Jesus Christ coming into flesh. God had willed it from the beginning of time that he would make mankind a little lower than angels for a moment with glory and honor to rule the earth. It's a part of its flourishing design. But there is a problem. And you and I feel that problem every day of our life. And he's going to deal with that problem. And the only way that he can deal with that problem is by taking on flesh. And so the author of this book in verse 6 then turns back to the Old Testament to talk about who it is that Jesus Christ was going to be. And he quotes Psalm 8. And we look at this in verse 6 in chapter 2. It has been testified somewhere. And he's referring to Psalm 8 here. He doesn't quote it. He says this, this is Psalm 8, verse, starting in verse 4. He's quoting it here in Hebrews. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, this is a psalm of King David. And King David is reflecting on the goodness and grace of God in the role that he has given humanity in his creation, made a little lower than the angels for a time. There'll be a day that the spiritual world and the physical will be united on earth when Jesus reigns forever. But for a little while, little lower than the angels, glory and honor, everything under our feet, 
These verses link us back to the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, that we remember that we were made in the image of God, that God looked on his creation, he said it was very good, and what did he task his creation, his very good creation with? He tasked us with being fruitful and multiplying and subduing the earth. Jesus, or God, I should say, which is Jesus, says to us that you are to take my good creation and you as my very good creation through love for me and faithfulness to me, you are to take the good of this world and you are to make very good things to image my love and my faithfulness and my beauty to the world that they know you. And so David is reflecting on the might and the worth and the wonder of God, the beauty of his creation. And in Psalm 8, before the quotation in Hebrews, David says these words in Psalm 8, verse 3. He says, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. And he asks this question, what is man that you are mindful of? I imagine David being out on his balcony, a balcony that will be his folly later when he sees Bathsheba. He's on his balcony and he's looking up at the night sky and he's awed by God's creation and he's looking at these thousands of stars that he can see in the sky. He is moved to awe and he says, Lord, who am I? Who are we that you are mindful of us? But little does David understand that in those cosmos, amongst those stars are planets. And those planets form together with that star, those stars to make solar systems. And those solar systems form together with tens and millions of other solar systems to make our galaxy called the Milky Way. And outside of our Milky Way galaxy are tens and millions of other galaxies that are filled with tens and millions of other solar systems that are filled with tens and millions of other stars and planets. And so when you understand the complexity of our cosmos as we do today, Is it not striking to hear these words that amongst the vastness of all of creation, of the galaxy upon galaxies, that God sees us? Might you in here hear that in a way that you understand that your value and your worth is not tied to the praise and the applause and the approval of this world. It's not tied to your successes or failures or accomplishments. Your worth and value was predetermined in creation by a God who formed the galaxies and sustains them and he sees you. Your worth is in him and how he sees you. My daughter on a trip to the beach on our vacation, she found this little piece of glass. It was a broken bottle. But she picked it up with such delight in her heart, and she said, Daddy, look, sea glass. To me, it was junk. To her, it was a supreme possession of value. That is how the Lord our God sees us from the cosmos. You are valuable simply because he made you. And not only is he mindful of us, But it says that he put us in a position of honor and glory, of authority to rule and reign on this earth with him. But we know that that has not gone well for us. And we pick that up here in verse 8. In Hebrews 2 verse 8, it says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And so there's a lot that is communicated in these two sentences. The truth is, is that we do not see everything in subjection to him, meaning mankind. 
because the whole world has been fractured and diminished by sin. We, as humanity, have lost a bit of our glory and our honor as God's partners in dominion. Today, this world is ruled by the God of the age, and that is Satan and the powers of darkness. And humanity rules the world with a corrupted power and a corrupted authority that was not God's original intent and design. And you must remember in all of your daily interactions that this is not how the world should be. And it will not be how the world will be in the age to come. Our sin has broken creation and we do not see this glorious truth of everything being in subjection under him in this moment, nor do we Or are we mindful of the fact that that eventually will be true of us? But listen to the hope that this author pins to this church here in 70 AD. In verse 9, he says this, But we see him for who a little while was made lower than angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And so we've got a, a couple of things to sort out here. There is a double meaning in these passages around the idea of the Son of Man. We read it first in verse 8. It is a generic term that was first quoted by King David, a generic term to describe humanity. We You and I are sons and daughters of man. We are sons and daughters of man. We're human. That's its generic term. But this phrase also becomes a title, the son of man, a phrase that Jesus said about himself often. So I want you to remember that this author is trying to ground his congregation in the truth of Jesus as a human. And so listen to how he does this. They would have in that day and for millennia, had believed that there would be one that would come as the Son of Man, who would restore them to glory and honor, who would redeem them. And there were moments in the Old Testament where the people of God thought it was going to be Moses, where they thought it was going to be Joshua, where they thought it was going to be Aaron, where they thought it was going to be King David. But as promising as those men were, all of them failed. And that is a great grace to us as humanity today. Because it concrete, it's a concrete reminder for us that salvation is not based on man, but salvation is the work of God and God alone. And so out of his great love for us, God sends the son into the world for a little while to be made lower than the angels. Like us, we were made a little lower than the angels in this glorious promotion. But here, Jesus is made a little bit lower than the angel through humiliating relegation. He is made lower than the angel, stripped of his majesty, of of his splendor to become like us. He becomes a man, born of woman, a son of man to become the son of man, meaning that he would become the representation of all humanity before a holy and just God. Why? to crush the curse of sin and death forever. And how does he do that? Through a life of perfection and then through glorious suffering. That he in our place would endure the worst the world could offer 
and an agonizing death so we don't have to. And the scripture reminds us that just as one man, Adam, brought transgression into the world, that one man, Jesus, would bring forgiveness of sins and redemption into the world. Jesus is the son of man. He is our representation in front of a holy God. And so here's what the author is saying to this little storm-tossed church. He's saying, look, you're a hard-pressed from virtually every side, right? We remember that these people would have been hated by the Roman culture at the time for worshiping one God alone. They are mere years away from being slaughtered in the Roman Colosseum. But they're also disowned by their former relatives who are Jews because they believe that they're committing blasphemy by declaring Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Certainly, he says for them, you do not feel like you're in a moment of authority. Certainly, I'm sure it doesn't feel like you have glory and honor. I bet you feel like you're under somebody else's foot. But here's what he says. But we see Jesus, right? Not that we will see Jesus, not that we did see Jesus, but we see Jesus in the present tense, both now and forevermore, implying, look, we know how this is going to end. We know how this is going to end. And we see Jesus, our professed redeemer, creator, king, and savior, who will make everything right, who will restore all things, who suffered and died in our place. He was relegated, and in doing so, he was crowned with glory and honor that you and I might eventually be promoted to glory and honor in the new kingdom by faith through grace. And then in verse 10, the author says this, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, as I said, that there were some in this day who could not relegate or reconcile the, the brutal way in which Jesus died to his claim of being God. There was a stigma in that day for the way that he died. First, as a Jewish man, he was killed by an occupying, uh, occupying foreign army in his own land. And that uniquely has its own shame. But secondly, he was subjected to the most gruesome and barbaric death that the Romans could dream up. It stripped every human of their dignity. He was crucified as a mere criminal. And so those two things combined would bring utter shame onto the person that was killed and their family. And so because the author knows that's the narrative, that people are talking about the stigma of Jesus' death, he writes this, that it's only fitting that he would die the death that he did as the son of man, fully God and fully man. Jesus' death had to be agonizing. And why did it have to be agonizing? Because it had to represent the full fallen state of humanity that had spiraled in sin ever since they had rejected God. God had to send his son into the world to suffer the worst that humanity could throw at him to what? To illustrate to us the great love that he has for us. That he made the people that, that I should say, that, that, that all he made, all things that he made in whom all things exist, this is Jesus, 
that he had to suffer all things, the, the depth of our rejection, the depth of our wickedness, the depths of our humiliation, so that he might descend so low beneath our sin that we would recognize the depth and the width of his grace and forgiveness to us. That the cross of Christ brings to us a scandalous forgiveness and grace, the type that the world has never seen before. It came with a great cost. That Jesus was the pioneer of our salvation. He blazed the path for our forgiveness. And through his brutal suffering, he was made perfect. Now that is an interesting verse when we read it, that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. It leads us to a few logical conclusions if we think about it worldly. We could lead to a logical conclusion that maybe, well, Jesus was not perfect. Maybe he was sinful. And in fact, that he had to go through some purification process through trials and tests to be made perfect. Or or the other logical argument that one could make is maybe Jesus was never perfect from inception. Maybe he needed to come to earth to, to then be made perfect. Now, those are logical questions in our our day and age and in our mind, but, but they're not the answer here to why Jesus was perfected through suffering. Uh, I've lost my place. Our Trinity is made up of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And each one of the members of that Trinity are equal in value, worth, significance, and power, but all of them hold a distinct role. God the Father is the source. God the the Son, Jesus Christ, is the great accomplisher. And God the Holy Spirit is known as the great applier. And so look, Jesus was always God's redeeming creator king. And he's always been perfect. His Suffering is the evidence of his perfection. Why? Because he did exactly what he was supposed to do. And he did it without fail. You know, consider a finely made chisel that was made by a supreme craftsman. Perfectly designed, perfectly weighted, perfectly sharpened. Yet it cannot achieve the status of perfection until it performs the task it was designed to do without fail. Jesus was always going to redeem us. Jesus is always going to shed his blood for us. Jesus is always going to be made to suffer for us. But in his time on earth, it proved as evidence to who he was and his perfection. He did it without fail. And then in verse 11, the author goes on to say, for he who, is sanct- who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I tell of you, of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given us. Because Jesus Christ has come into the flesh, Because he's become a human, we share in his glorious death and resurrection, not as strangers, not as onlookers, but as fellow members of the same human 
family. Christ died in our place that we might live through him. He was sanctified, meaning that God accepted his sacrifice as whole and just, a propitiation for our sins. He is sanctified. And then he says this in this verse, and those of us who are being sanctified, meaning this, is those of us who have been saved by faith through grace. Those of us who are growing in our, our love and our faith and our joy in the Lord, what does it say about those who are being sanctified? It says that we have one source. We are the same human family that God's death and resurrection covers us. And in the cosmic realms, our father hears from the son, that's my brother, that's my sister. He's not over us as a triennial ruler, but God Christ looks at us and it says, brother, sister. How amazing is that, that our sovereign king in all of the cosmos would notice us, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that same God would call us brother and sisters. What a glorious statement that is for us. And then in verse 14, he says, since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Death, the author says, has a tremendous power over us. It creates within us a lifelong slavery. Why? Because we fear death so greatly. Whether we recognize it or not, we fear death greatly. It creates a life in that fear of death, a life that has a scarcity mentality, where we think, I only have so much of life to live. I only have so much here on earth. And so I must then, because this is so limited, I must then be consumed by me. I must then be consumed by what I want, by being happy now, by living this life for me. Our fear of death produces so much sin and ungodliness in our life. But for the one who trusts by faith in Jesus Christ, we believe that Jesus Christ dealt a final blow to the power of devil, the devil and of death. And we believe this, that yes, we physically will die someday. We will physically die, but we will go on to live forever with Jesus Christ in his ever arriving kingdom. We believe that Jesus Christ purchased us eternal life, but that eternal life or heaven as we might call it, is not some golden ticket that we cash in when we die. It's not some admission ticket. Jesus Christ brought the destruction of death to the power and to the power of the devil to bring us freedom to live in this world as one fully knowing that there is more to come. We aren't limited by this world. We're not limited, meaning there is life to be had after this. There's more than this world, which means that this world isn't about us and it's not for us. It isn't. It's about Jesus. It is about the one who delivered us from our greatest enemy of death. It is not ours to live for ourselves, but we are to live for the world to come as agents and ambassadors of Christ, to image him into the world 
through our lives. And in that imaging and in our roles that God has not left us alone, he has not disappeared. In verse 16, the author writes, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What we read here is a joy to remember, that we remember that Jesus didn't die for angels. He died for humanity. And that is the reason why he became flesh, like us in every way to deliver us, but also to sympathize and sustain us, knowing our every need and every flaw because he too experienced it. We're going to talk more about Jesus as a great sympathizer when we get to chapter 5. But what we will say is because Jesus became like us, he is able to help to a greater degree than if he didn't. Jesus has experienced every temptation and struggle that we might ever face in our life, and then some. Therefore, he is proven supremely worthy to be our help in times of hardship and temptation. Why? One, we can look to an example. We can read about Jesus in our scripture. We can see his righteousness. We can see his peace. We can see his love. We can see his joy and his faithfulness in the midst of our temptation. What a gift that we have in the example of Jesus. And secondly, because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and our belief in him by faith, God has brought the Holy Spirit into our lives to convict us and to guide us and sustain us in all of our temptations. Jesus Christ has made it. A, he, is, he has become a worthy help for us in our temptation. And so I, I think that this author brings a tremendous comfort to this little storm-tossed church that is in the midst of persecution and hardship. And he says to this little church three things. He says that you and I, we can struggle, that we can be hard-pressed. Why? Why can we be hard-pressed? Number one, because there is a promised day that is coming, where you will no longer feel the subjugation of man. You will no longer feel the weight of the world, but you will be promoted through the relegation of Christ into glory and honor to rule and reign with him in the kingdom of come. We can stay hard-pressed. We can struggle because that is true. And number two is that we can struggle now. We can be hard-pressed because we can look to Jesus. We have Jesus, and we can see our Messiah, our friend, but not only our friend, our brother or sister, who blazed the trail of salvation for us. And we know that through his death and his resurrection, that he has the victory, that he has won this, and we can be patient and struggle. And number three is we can struggle now, and we can be hard-pressed now, because this isn't all there is to life. Jesus defeated our greatest enemy. He has dealt a final blow to the devil, to death, so that even in this moment of struggle, we can live with the hope and joy of the world to come and have the freedom in this moment to walk in this moment as one who will never die. What a glorious truth that he gives to this church in great persecution. 
And what a glorious truth that God reminds us of today. We are reminded today to hold tight to our future, that God has promised us a glorious and true promotion. But that promotion to rule and reign with him in his new kingdom came at a great cost. It came by the relegation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being made a little lower from angels for just a little while. And that relegation has brought to us a great hope and joy. Therefore, therefore, it is our responsibility as faithful men and women to make every desire and intention of our heart promote the name of Jesus. We are to promote Christ in every aspect of our life. He is to be the Lord of every single aspect. And for him to be promoted, it will cost us. It means that we ourselves must face our own relegation, that we must die for the sake of Christ, that he would be the name above all names, the promoted cause of our life, the very hope and source of our lives. What a joy it is that our author in Hebrews 2 brings to us today and the truth of a wonderful promotion through the great humiliating relegation of Jesus Christ.